What is up, everyone? This is CK. Welcome to POV Crypto. I'm here with, as always, David Hoffman, and now a third-time guest to the show, Cal Davies. How is it going, Cal? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, per usual, uh, you present a significant amount of signal when it comes to uh, the direction of crypto markets. And uh, I always like to kind of keep an eye on what you're tweeting about. So uh, I've noticed that your uh, position has changed and uh, what you're bullish on has changed. And I'm just kind of, I want to open it up with, I guess, you know, who you are, what Three, Ar- Three Arrows Capital does and uh, what your position is in the crypto space right now. Uh, so we're a regulated hedge fund in Singapore. Uh, we uh, are active uh, only in crypto. So we do um, trading, directional. We do market neutral trades, um, things like trading for spot versus futures arbitrage. Um, and we do uh, primary investment. So we look at layer one protocols, DeFi protocols, um, and uh, we have a whole team dedicated to that. So. Um, but broadly, I guess position-wise, um, w- basically uh, our call was around when Bitcoin was uh, about 10.5K. And uh, we thought that uh, as the yields were coming off in DeFi, uh, the farming, um, that there would be a significant redenomination into Bitcoin. Um, and then we thought that as we got close to 20K, that uh, media coverage would start to accelerate and we would go through all-time highs. So basically, I think we were the only ones at 10.5K that were calling for all-time highs, but I think we're going through them, basically. Yeah, would you say that what has happened since making those calls has played out as you expected it to? Actually, remarkably so. Um, I don't know if we are usually this accurate, but um, we we did get pretty lucky this time around, actually. Um, and I think maybe part of it was we were just involved in uh, DeFi yields. So mm-hmm. uh, for us, it wasn't even just like my own view on the market. It was rather we had a trading team that was mm-hmm. farming, uh, you know, uh, decentralized protocols. And uh, and then they started to move capital away from it. And they started to go back to doing things like on the futures basis because that was a better yield for them. And I was looking at that thinking like this is this is not good. This is just not good for um, there's got to be a correction here. And that's uh, that's when we basically went uh, heavy into Bitcoin. So, Kyle, I definitely want to talk more about DeFi and the relationship between DeFi and BTC slash ETH price and, and three hours trades there. But before I, before we get further into that, I've increasingly come to notice the word Chad be used more and more in relationship to three arrows capital. How does that make you feel? Like how, what's your what's your response to that? I don't know. I don't I don't call myself a Chad. People can call me whatever they want, but they um, now from a, from our perspective, we're, it's part of the community here, right? So I think th- th- it is important to be to be open and part of a community. Um, you know, I think maybe other firms might be a little bit more uh, off social media. We try to be very much involved because we actually think that uh, uh, it's not necessarily it's not only a uh, um, a protocol or finance or whatever that you're interacting with, but it's also it's very much a social community, and I think that's really important. Actually. You guys kind of have your hands in every aspect of the different crypto communities, right? Uh, whether it's Deribit and futures trading, whether it's uh, regulated GBTC, whether it's BlockFi, whether it's DeFi directly. I mean, like where where do you guys not have your hands in? 
I don't know. Like, I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you manage so many different expertise and um, how are you effective? Well, a lot of these are longer term positions, right? So, uh, for example, Deribit, that's our largest equity position. That's not active. Like, we're, we're, we're just a long term investor in Deribit. It's not tradable, for example. And we work very closely with their team. Uh, Sue uh, writes for Deribit Insights, which is their research portal. Um, and we try to, because it's a community, we don't just put futures or derivative stuff on there. We also put DeFi. We also put uh, layer one protocol. Um, if there's a big hack, we try to put some uh, color on that. But basically, it's just uh, either like our spin or our, our uh, uh, thoughts on it or uh, someone else uh, we try to bring on as well. Um, so I kind of just see it all connected, to be honest. I don't see, like a lot of our positions are very long term and more community oriented. Uh, especially de- decentralized finance. Uh, we have a team that does only decentralized finance and it's all composable, all the teams work together. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, um, let's say macro positions where we trade layer one protocols against each other. So if I think there's going to be a correction, I can't, like even if I wanted to, I can't sell, you, you know, uh, community projects that we're locked up in for years. Like those are long-term things that we have to work on, but I, I can short a layer one protocol against that so that I don't lose money on the way down. Um, and, and that's something that I think is really important. So, so we, yeah, we, t- we basically treat it as a macro book uh, that has, you know, you know, venture capital long-term positions and that has uh, more thematic uh, positions as well. So Kyle, the last time you were on here, Bitcoin was below 10K. It was like 8K or something. Ether was like 220, 200, maybe $60, $260. It was right around the time that the comp token came out. And yeah. you, you predicted right that right before. Yeah. And and you predicted that and you and three euros capital, I guess, if to whatever degree that they those are the same things, uh, would position themselves in a very pro DeFi environment. Uh, and then in you in on the podcast, you predicted that Bitcoin was going to struggle at 10K, but yeah. Ether didn't really have um, much like price discovery or price history above um, like above its current its current levels at the time, which was 260. Uh, and a, a debate that we frequently have on the, the POV crypto is trying to figure out how much we weight overall price action, uh, what, what the common denominator is to price action. So my claim is that Bitcoin broke 10K because of DeFi. Uh, and Christian says that, uh, would, would give, give the point that, you know, whatever's going around around Bitcoin doesn't really matter. And it's ultimately the happening cycle that, that changes and determines what the underlying price is of the whole industry. What, what's your take on that? There's actually a fundamental um, uh, usage now of protocols, which in 2017, I would argue there really wasn't, right? Um, but now there is. So... Um, I would say that I, we were quite bullish DeFi because we were users of it too. We were uh, very much involved in the farming and very much involved in uh, seeding lots of projects, uh, working with communities um, uh, on governance as well. So we, um, for us, that like that's what got us excited because we saw lots of usage. What then changed my mind was um, when a lot of DeFi was incentivized. Um, and incentiv- incentivization really is bringing forward cash flows or bringing forward, um, you know, you're basically rewarding early users um, with tokens or, or governance or whatever um, that is coming out of future cash flows, right? Um, and uh, 
but those were incentivized and those were ending and you could and you could see the schedule of when those were ending and when the, when we saw that we just thought well we were you know we caught like maybe a, a pendulum that swung up uh, a little bit too high um, on the excitement of those incentives and then it would swing down a little bit too low and DeFi is uh, headed in towards all-time highs again some of these protocols right um ave for example which we backed um that's a long-term position for us it's close to all-time highs um and um and i can't that, that, again that's a position that i i don't trade that because that we're working with the community we're locked up we're um we're a user of it but i can trade a layer one against that so when we saw that correction basically our our short was e because um, that was the that was the best way for me to express that uh, that price action. This has become a, a famous topic on on Twitter: is is three O Capital's generalized ETH short versus Bitcoin? Uh, and the, I I didn't follow the, uh, this you know, this uh, this story like too closely, but from what from the, from what I understand, three O's Capital Suzu you uh, painted a picture of being short ETH versus Bitcoin, right? E- Bitcoin's going to go up versus ETH, and that then. F- followed to be come out to be true to a decent extent uh but then there seems to be a really strong reversal which a lot of people in uh the ethereum community who get offended when people eat short the eth token are feeling some schadenfreude about about that um uh, are you still short eth versus btc as of this moment uh yeah um but we like the way i think about it actually is um We've seeded a lot of decentralized protocols, which are building on ETH, like like really a lot, um, <laughs> and have continued to do so. Uh, I think we're announcing one later this week. And f- and for us, basically, I feel that that application layer can do quite well, and we're quite bullish on. For Ethereum itself, like like the, the reason I was so bullish on ETH before uh, on the the last podcast is um, I did not like owning Bitcoin post having immediately post having. Because um, I think there were, I thought there was too much media attention on it, but I, I think that that uh, basically that's been reversed at this point. Like now, as we're heading into all-time highs, there's going to be more and more media attention on on Bitcoin, and the idea that like 20k is going to be resistance is a complete farce. Like it, it's going to be uh, price discovery right right through it. Right. So um, I think it, it's it, we're not shorting the community. We are we are very much long the community. Um, we just think that the uh, we're very excited about the dom like uh, a Bitcoin dominance run and uh, the usage of decentralized protocols. And then perhaps I don't know, maybe if Bitcoin overshoots, maybe we'll change our mind. But like for the foreseeable future, I just don't see that happening. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I want to kind of ask about the like the entire crypto space working together, right? Really, the way that I see, and I've stated this multiple time on, times on this podcast, is I see Ethereum as kind of like the mother of all exchanges, at least what it is right now for DeFi. Obviously, it's a lot more expensive. That's the cost of coordinating, you know, these servers across the world. But, you know, what I see is like it, it is offering permissionless KYC free trading um, ecosystems and it's, you know, it, it's attracting the money. And I don't see that stopping, at least with DeFi. I don't know what that means for the speculative pump. A lot of these tokens, a lot of them are kind of liquid. So that's probably why they have such good price action. But like, how do you see all of this stuff working together, right? I just don't see like DeFi doesn't succeed without Bitcoin in my mind and vice versa. Like Bitcoin is better off by having, you know, a more robust shitcoin exchange. I do think it all is synergistic. Um, so for example, we've been, uh, you can take Bitcoin, you can wrap Bitcoin, 
um, and use it in the Ethereum e ecosystem. Um, we've, 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 we've done that. Um, and uh, I think if you look at a, you know, the growth of WBTC, um, it's been quite big this year, right? Um, so the usage, it's not just holding necessarily, but also usage in staking and uh, borrow lending protocols, things like that, right? So I'm excited to see more usage. And if uh, decentralized finance is the first, that's great. That, I mean, we, we've invested heavily in that space. But when I watch BTC on Ethereum, and there's literally a, literally a website called btconethereum.com where you can see all the different implementations of tokenized Bitcoin, and they're all going up and to the right. Like the my, my thesis, and a lot, a lot of people in the Ethereum community visualize Ethereum as like an economic nexus where there's just a bunch of activity going on. Uh, and yeah. so you modeling, using that model, uh, people that are bullish on that thesis would expect that Bitcoin on Ethereum would basically only ever go up. And perhaps like almost indefinitely so, to like basically where Bitcoin goes to Ethereum is kind of basically this one-way road, like more or less. Do you agree with that take? Not that not that all Bitcoin will find itself on Ethereum, but that generally only ever more Bitcoin will come to be on Ethereum. Well, there's only 21 billion Bitcoin, so can't can't go forever. But, yeah, uh, that's true. That's true. But the, the, the trend is positive. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's definitely a strong positive trend right now. And I, yeah, I, I don't see a reason. I mean, unless uh, as long as decentralized finance is growing, people are going to want to put more assets there. Um, and it's quite natural that Bitcoin would be, you know, a significant asset, but there will be others too, right? It's, it's, it's not the only one. And then how do you also integrate the evolution of Ethereum 2.0 into your investment thesis? Like you have, you have to be thinking about um, any positive price appreciation in Ether as a result of Ethereum 2.0 when you weight it versus Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm not an expert here. Um, we, so we're relying on other people, but uh, we have been watching Ethereum 2.0 developments. If it all delivers uh, as planned, then it, that, that'll be very good for Ethereum. But I like, I just, I don't know. I, I think, I actually think that uh, the, the Bitcoin is more likely to see uh, a growth uh, of both on, uh, on Ethereum for, for usage, but also uh, from a media like uh, mm -hmm. um, microphone uh, perspective, uh, just being amplified. Um, for E2 in particular, I don't really want to speak about specifics because mm -hmm. um, it, it might be taken out of context and like, I just don't, um, but uh, we, we are watching it very closely. Well, so the message I got out of that is that like, you know, you, you know that ETH2 is on the radar, but really what you're paying attention to is just general media and macro acceptance and knowledge and understanding of Bitcoin itself, uh, which um, I think we were talking before, you use the term reflexive. Talk about, talk about reflexivity and why you are, you're thinking that's relevant and how you're integrating that into your trade. Yeah. Um, so the best description of reflexivity for me is... Um, George Soros's book, uh, Alchemy of Finance in 1987. Um, and he basically describes truth and knowledge. And he talks about if there, um, if there is no exogenous uh, data point that you're looking at, then the market can become very reflexive. For example, if uh, uh, a central bank is looking at the economy and then changing interest rates, um, this is the example he gives then uh, they may see the economy as weak and lower interest rates. But then as they do that, the market, the economy becomes even weaker because the market is then signaled that it is, and then they have to do it again. So it's quite rare that the central bank will raise rates or 
uh, lower rates one time. It's usually a cycle and it signals to the market that the economy is very strong, and very weak, and becomes very reflexive, right? Um, another one would be price and uh, investors. If investors see a price um, going up as bullish, then they will buy. But when they buy, the price goes higher and then it can be reflexive, right? Um, but this is across the board, you see it in crypto. Another example would be um, uh, uh, decentralized protocol and uh, total value lock, TVL. And as you have more total value locked, you become more bullish, so you buy more and then you lock up more and then you know it can also become reflexive. So uh, the, the nature of, of crypto markets in general is pretty reflexive. Um, and that just leads to overshooting on the upside, on the downside, and uh, it can be a pendulum both ways. Decentralized finance, for example, we've seen it go um, uh, up in through September, uh, down like 90% on a lot of these things um, about a month later. And then some of them are close to the all-time highs uh, now, uh, second month after that. So I think reflexive is a good, is a good uh, market sentiment here. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to continue to be reflexive all the way up and down into 2021. In terms of how you think about value capture, I'm kind of curious how you feel about the idea of the thin protocol thesis or the idea that the app layer captures the value and the, you know, I guess in this case it would be Ethereum doesn't necessarily capture the value. And potentially a way to think about Bitcoin in this scenario is that Bitcoin is just the sound money app that can run on, you know, a lot of different platforms. So, I mean, you guys are obviously invested heavily in the app layer, Ethereum directly and Bitcoin. Like, let's say this app layer is successful. Where's the value captured? What does it mean for Ethereum? Um, I do think that there is going to be significant value capture on the app layer to the extent that there's usage, right? The, the analogy that a lot of people give is uh, all of Silicon Valley, like Google, Apple, whatever, um, are all, that is the app layer and that is getting all the value of the old world, right? In the new world, the web uh, 2.0 or 3.0, uh, 3.0 version, I guess, um, we expect users to have more value capture, right? Um, but I, I still think the application layer, um, it should have choice, right? Um, you have to win uh, their usage. So it's not uh, a given that everything's gonna be on Ethereum. Um, it has the lead, it should, like I, th I think it will be predominantly on Ethereum, but uh, they have to win it, right? And they have won it so far um, to, to, the, to uh, Ethereum's credit. Um, but yeah, I think that the value capture when usage comes will be on the application layer. Um, in, in the short term, that doesn't need to be the case though. In the short term, I think if I look at it uh, from like a fund manager's perspective, fund managers love to hold uh, layer one protocols uh, because they see a, a large treasury behind it. They see a large community behind it. They see significant deliverables. They see other teams building on top of it. So they, I think in general fund managers, uh, maybe I'm speaking a little bit too broadly, uh, but uh, they like to hold layer one protocols. Um, whereas application layers, you need to really be quite specific about what application, how you're working with them, and um, and have a vision for how it's going to grow beyond like a, a, a thousand daily active users, which 
it's hard to do in crypto. When we're talking about the application layer, I'm assuming we're talking about the value capture associated by the tokens of specific DeFi protocols, right? So like the compound compound has the comp token, Maker has the MKR token, Aave has the Aave token. Um, so the, the generalized thesis that I've heard for these tokens is that the tokens are governance tokens and the governors of the protocol can vote themselves into cash flow. Uh, is that does all, is that your thesis as well, or how do you see the these tokens actually accruing value by what mechanism? Um, I, I'm, I actually think the governance is going to be hard. I think it has to be more directly tied to cash flows. Um, if you think about a traditional company, uh, there is a, a fiduciary duty to shareholders. Um, so if someone were to come in and uh, you know, try to take control and take the money themselves, they wouldn't be able to do so. Uh, it would be, you know, it, it would be like robbery, it'd be illegal, right? Um, in a decentralized protocol, there is no such fiduciary duty. If someone comes in and were to get most of the governance, um, they could, in theory, just take the treasury themselves, right? Um, and uh, because of that, I think we've seen that governance, like teams that are building, are not willing to give up the governance. And, uh, and because of that, you know, it, it basically means that the governance is not worth anything because the team is not willing to give it up. So it is thus not decentralized. So I think that problem hasn't been quite solved yet. Uh, if it were to be solved, um, then it would be less a game of, you know, of uh, uh, aggressive outsiders trying to like take treasuries. And it'd be more a game of like how to work with a team to build a stronger protocol with more cash flows. Um, so I think I'm more bullish the closer it is to a cash flow and the less it is like a governance. Makes sense to me. Pretty bearish on a lot of stuff, though. What are you looking out there that that you know makes you feel optimistic? There are three verticals in DeFi that we look at. Um, I guess one would be trading, one would be borrow and lending, and the third would be stable coins. Um, I think there are other things that work synergistically to it, like insurance. But generally speaking, those are the three uh, pillars that we've looked at and invested in numerous protocols in them. Um, I would like to see, yeah, I would like to see more uh, more usage. Um, and I think a great way to do that is people love to hold Bitcoin, wrap Bitcoin, and then people can use it, right? So I, like, I, I kind of like the idea of not inventing value, but taking value and making it more productive, right? Um, and uh, that's that's you asked about uh, you know WBTC earlier. I think that that that's kind of the way I'm thinking about WBTC too. Um, if I can get yield on my Bitcoin, that historically has been a great idea. But people have been worried about trust, right? Like how are you gonna how are you gonna there was a, a, a big uh, fraud with uh, cred recently, right? That looks like it's coming out. Um, and uh, people that lent them thought they were getting yield on their Bitcoin. It turns out may not get their Bitcoin back, right? Um, I think. That, that, that kind of uh, 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 solution that you might get in uh, decentralized finance could be could be very interesting, right? Yeah, I'm sure David has a lot to say about that. Uh, I definitely think that DeFi's version of rehypothecation is is better. So composability is kind of DeFi's version of, of rehypothecation, but I think it's a lot better. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, it's just like, WBTC is kind of like putting your Bitcoin into an exchange, except it's Bitco and then it's open source can work inside the Ethereum ecosystem. Like, I really like, I think, I, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the best way to think about DeFi is from the, the, the perspective of, you know, some sort of decentralized exchange ecosystem. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it, it's, you can think about it as like uh, one giant financial system that has many moving parts that are all composable, right? Um, and I, when it comes to something like WPTC, like, yes, there is a trusted party in the middle, but it's auditable. That's, the, that's kind of the beauty of it, right? Whereas if you're lending to, I, like the idea that there's this chain of rehypothecation is kind of a farce. There's a chain of like one or maybe two at the very most, because at the end of the day, like where does yield come from in crypto? It comes from trading the futures basis or from staking into uh, providing liquidity for someone to trade, right? Um, it's a, you're, you're providing a service, right? Um, and so it doesn't, it's not like mortgage-backed securities that get, uh, you know, re-bundled uh, five different ways and then put on thousands of times leverage. That doesn't happen, right? Um, it's very much lending to one firm, which will then supply liquidity uh, to, uh, or provide a service to leverage traders. That's really where it all comes from. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes to like DeFi's role in that, it's just more audible. Like you can see, you can see exactly where the funds are and, you know, that, you have to be careful about the protocol itself getting hacked, but you can see, you can see it's there, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of nice. Kyle, you said about getting yield on your WBTC in DeFi. Uh, do you mean BTC denominated yield or do you mean like withdrawing a USDC loan and then using that loan to like uh, provide liquidity somewhere? How, how do you get yield on your WBTC in DeFi? Um, I, I'd rather not say exactly how we're doing it, but I would not like fair. to. But uh, yeah, you can. There, there, are, there are ways to get uh, incentivized yield on WBTC. Basically, um, denominated in BTC or dollars, it'll be denominated in something else, but you can sell it into whatever you want. Right. Okay. Um, like, at the, at, at, which is the same that you would get, by the way, in a centralized way, like you, your, your yield can be denominated in whatever you sell it into. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think generally Bitcoiners are looking at stacking more sets. So for them, I don't think it's a question of, um, you know, what, like, wait, what is the yield in? Like, they, they could just sell it into more Bitcoin, right? Is everyone a Bitcoiner? <laughs> is everyone a Bitcoiner? <laughs> are, are, are all ETH is an existential question. Yeah, and I uh, always is. <laughs> um, well, it's coming to a four with inflation, right? Um, I think, I think the Bitcoin narrative is just super strong right now. Um, You've got you, like you've got the uh, central bank narrative. You've got the all-time high narrative. You've got the um, you know more usage. Uh, all the whole thing, I just think, is quite strong for Bitcoin. I, I want to bring it back to Ethereum just because I think there's a lot to poke at right here. Like, what do you make of what happened last week? You know, obviously there's yeah. uh, some tells about what the social consensus layer looks like. How the uh, physical network of Ethereum one looks like and who's kind of in charge here. Um, yeah. It's not the same thing as Bitcoin, you know, for all those L1 people. Like, I feel like there's very different kinds of L1s. Um, I guess, what do you make of that whole debacle? Yeah, I, I, it was a debacle. I agree with that. But um, I think from our perspective, we're like, I, I'm really, I'm, I, I don't code. I don't uh, look at smart contracts myself. We rely on other people in our team or experts. So, um, uh, actually, we got lunch with Vitalik the other day, uh, two weeks ago, too. Asked him. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but basically, yeah, like we, um, 
yeah, we're, we're, we're relying on other people. So for my, like, I don't really have a strong answer for when E2 is going to deliver or whatever. But if I see, uh, you know, a testnet issue or if I see a uh, consensus, like, uh, issue like there was last week, um, then th those are just signs to me that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the time. Like maybe, I don't know if, if there's a different uh, uh, metagame or plan to play. Why would you say that what ha and for, for, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about how um, uh, Geth broke when Optimism did this transaction on mainnet and there were two, two different versions of Geth out there and some old versions of Geth nodes uh, broke down and that caused people that were using Infura to break down. And so there was this consensus, uh, there was a fork, there was basically a fork, which then got remediated after the fact, um, implying that there are consensus issues with the Ethereum blockchain. My perspective on this is that it, this actually doesn't matter all that much in the long term, uh, because like the the whole point is that like you, you guys called it a debacle, but like nothing really happened. Like nothing. You know, it wasn't a consensus issue. It was uh, the way it was delivered. Um, like on the one hand, we like to see uh, decentralization, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think basically, I think ETH one needs to ossify, like properly ossify, such mm -hmm. that we don't need to be worried about. Uh, releases that were known, by the way, by the team, and then not told people, and then like uh, you know uh, the optimism team found out later, right? So um, I think, yeah, the, the, the dream would be that you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because there are people building on top, right? Like mm -hmm. um, I think an application layer doesn't want to have to worry about that kind of stuff. They just want to build, right? And they want to worry about they want to worry about their community or their use uh, their the vision of their own protocol. They don't really want to have to worry about uh, the uh, layer one uh, level. So, on the, and, and maybe to its credit, ETH is uh, much more um, ossified than some of the newer ones coming out. If you look at Polkadot, Solana, whatever, like those, those are still uh, changing, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and, and less battle tested too. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I can see merits to both, but um, I, basically it was not a strong point. So the, my question is that like, so you do actually consider that as an impact to your positions, right? You're, where, I mean, obviously, if a network keeps on having these issues every single week, you have to understand that that's not real, and not, not really a network. But this is this has been once in a blue moon for Ethereum, and it got smoothed over relatively quickly. I mean, I guess I guess that's to your point as to why why you see merits to both sides. Yeah, I didn't think. I mean, I didn't. It didn't impact our decision. Short before, short after. But um, like, if Bitcoin were to overshoot in a really big way and then start to see a pullback, and by big way, I mean it needs to go 25 to 50k, it needs to go to 12 months, um, then I think we see some uh, uh, a lot of. But for us, I guess the way I think about our portfolio composition is we hold uh, like a kind of a venture portfolio but we also hold the layer one and it's my job to make sure that the my weightings of these make uh, are coherent with the market and and basically yeah like i we can hold uh, all bitcoin if we wanted to um but if we think that ethereum's gonna outperform because bitcoin's gone on too much of a run or eth2's coming out or something like that then we can we can change it but i just uh, the signals I've seen so far, are basically, Bitcoin needs to go through all-time highs, which I think it will. So uh, we talked about this last time, and we talked about, like, how do you denominate your portfolio? What's your unit of account? 
Um, yeah. We've seen folks like Preston Pish going on record and denominating all stocks in Bitcoin and just saying all stocks are shit because they're all going down against Bitcoin. I'm kind of curious, like, can we revisit that question for you? Like, how do you view Bitcoin? Do you like bow down to 21 million or like, do, is it just kind of like just another asset? And I know you're a trader, but it sounds like you definitely have a nuanced position here. Uh, so our portfolio is very much denominated in Bitcoin. Um, and I think that's important because it needs to scale with the market. Um, if, uh, and we've seen that, like, if you look at some of the large investors from 2017, uh, some of them are out of the market right now or much, much smaller than they once were. And I think the problem was they, basically they weren't denominating Bitcoin, right? Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's really important to, den- to denominate Bitcoin uh, as, as any business or any uh, investor in crypto. As far as the 21 million cap goes, I think that is set in stone, actually. Um, I think it is going to be potentially hard to maintain with fees or uh, um, usage on it. So there may need to be another way that it is secured at some point. Um, But I think that the asset itself with that cap is uh, a property of Bitcoin that cannot be changed. Uh, Basically, I don't think the market would accept it. so, yeah, I don't know. For, for us, like, I see it as a, as a macro asset. I, we get, I'm in a couple of chats uh, and groups with uh, guys that trade uh, for, uh, fixed income. And, like, uh, and then and they, get, they talk about Bitcoin all the time. So, um, they, uh, so, yeah, for them, it's, like, it's not about uh, the roadmap or anything like this. It's just an asset, and, uh, and they, it's part of their portfolio. Can we talk about some of the... Like, what's the macro conversation like in, in those uh, chats, right? I think that a lot of Bitcoiners are very in tune with macro, but not everyone that listens to this podcast is necessarily super in tune to macro. I guess, let's talk, what are the macro conversations like and how much do you care about them? Other non-crypto assets right now, um, which is why I denominate my portfolio in Bitcoin. Uh, if I did trade all other assets, I'd probably denominate in dollars, right? Um, but if... Um, yeah, like I think the conversation in fixed income is around um, bonds being very expensive. Basically, uh, a central bank has two ways that they can uh, interact with the uh, economy, right? There's fiscal and monetary um, uh, policy. And uh, when, but once rates go to zero, they can't really, they can go slightly negative, but they can't really go very negative um, or highly unlikely. Um, and so at that point, they can, they, can, they can print money. And when they print money, um, you want to hold real assets. So um, houses, uh, you know, real estate, land, whatever, whatever it may be. But uh, Bitcoin has made its way into that narrative. And so people, people are holding it for that reason. All right. Well, to, to finish this conversation off and on that note, Kyle, we have uh, some predictions that we would like to get out of you. Uh, with regards to the peak of the cycle, when is it going to happen and at what prices? Well, we're going, we're going through all-time highs. Uh, it's, going to, it's not resistance, it's, it's price discovery. So um, at that point, we, we're going in the 25 to 50K range. I really don't have a strong view. It's a wide range. I don't have a strong view for exactly where it is. We have to gauge you know, uh, who the new market entrants are. Mm-hmm. Um, in we just are the largest company uh, largest bank in Southeast Asia, largest company in Singapore, uh, is announced they're opening their own uh, custody solution built by them and their own uh, digital asset exchange. Like, 
if you see central banks coming in, this thing's going to 100K, right? Um, but if you, but if we, if we don't see that and we just see uh, high net worth, media attention, like celebrities, uh, I think there was a celebrity this morning uh, that I saw a tweet about Bitcoin. Um, Aria, yeah, yeah, Aria Stark, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff, I don't know. That, that can that can be fleeting, right? So I don't. Um, if we if we if we do that, then we're going to 25k. If we see uh, other you know large institutions, which mm-hmm. we we may see, then we can go very high. What happens that indicates to you that we are at the top? Like, what what are you looking for to like? To, to jump ship? Like what, what are the indicators that you have in your head that you chew on that you're saying like, well, if, if this happens, then I'm definitely reducing my position. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of measures we have in place to make sure we don't do that. We like are denominating Bitcoin so that we don't sell into dollars too early. We are, um, I think that the, the larger scare is that you sell too early, basically. I'm, I'm less worried about selling the top. I'm more worried about selling too early um, or, or worried about being uh, heavily in alts. Um, cause that, 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 that stuff can fall like 95%, right? So, um, I, USD is an alt. Pardon? I said USD is an alt in, in a BTC portfolio. Oh yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, so the USD is down what, like 50 plus percent this year in Bitcoin. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I'm more worried about that. Um, but I am, uh, yeah, I guess top signals uh, would be uh, certain uh, announcements that we would see from. Uh, I think honestly, I'm not, I'm not really focused on this too too much right now. Too I, far, I, too far off. I'm terrified that I'm going to sell too early. I had friends that made a stupid killing in, uh, in 2017, and some of my early employees. And uh, basically, I, I was not letting that happen to me. Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, we're going to those levels this time, so I'm not I'm not worried about uh, uh, not selling the top. I'm worried about selling too early. I want to I want to reorient this. So part of selling is assuming that we're not going to hit the S in the, uh, the the adoption S curve, right? So like at some point, at least if you believe in the Bitcoin maximalist narrative, at some point you know we hit mass adoption and you know you'll never see those prices again. So it sounds like if you're willing to sell Bitcoin. Like, you think that we still have time to kind of hit that. Like, how, what do you think about, like, this narrative around this adoption S-curve? Hitting that, being too scared to sell early, you know, is selling at all even an option? At Like, at what point do you know that selling is not an option? Hmm. And, um, and do you believe in that narrative in the first place? I don't know if I believe this narrative per se, but I do, I am encouraged by seeing um, the recent market entrance be quite long-term minded, right? So- um, Michael Saylor. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you're seeing corporate treasuries or you're seeing um, uh, like private banks, private banks don't like, they, they, that, that money can stay there and die with that person. <laughs> like you go to their kids, right? So um, I, you see those kind of market entrants and you think that basically, uh, you know, we may not see uh, the lows of this year ever again. Right. Uh, at the highs of this year, I don't know. Like we might see those again, um, even if we pop. But like the lows, we may not because there's been new market entrants that are very long term minded right now. Fantastic. Well, I'm bullish naturally. Christian, do you have any any last questions for for Kyle here? Absolutely not. Uh, let's just kick it back to you. Where can people find you, and what are your last words? 
Um, well, we're on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way. Um, both Sue uh, and myself. Um, but yeah, no, don't be short. Don't be short. I, I can't remember who I heard say this, but it was on Twitter, but it's a really good take where they just said, listen, you just survived through like two years of a bear market. Like don't, and now you just have to do nothing and you get free money. Like now's the part where you just do nothing and you make money. So don't screw this up. Think of all your friends. What are, what are they going to be doing if you, <laughs> Bitcoin hits all that high and you sold? Um, no, I think, I think it's, a, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And um, anyone that remembers the last hype cycles, uh, well, uh, you know, is, is, is buckled in. Agreed. Kyle, somebody just ran the doorbell, so I have to go run and get that. But thank you for coming on at POV Crypto. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me again. Really appreciate it. Peace. Cheers, man. Later.